So, some terrible news. Horrible, unfortunate news. On January 25th, a few weeks ago, Nintendo published a video featuring uh, Shinya Takahashi, who detailed that Nintendo were going to be delaying Metroid Prime 4. Um, I don't want to say, like, indefinitely, but, like, I don't have a better word. Like, the game is being made still, but there's absolutely no update on the release. Um, So the details of this were that Nintendo were unhappy with the progress that was being made on the previously teased Metroid Prime 4 Switch title. Um, It was being developed internally at Nintendo, and apparently... Uh, according to some information, some some rumors, uh, I guess uh, this is I saw from uh, Imran Khan, who is a senior editor at Game Informer, was saying that the game was being developed at Nintendo under an experimental process, wherein it was being made in chunks by different teams in different countries. So I assume this was like some way to try and speed up the production process, right? Is that they would have different teams working on it, uh, I guess maybe for different strengths or whatever. But this obviously went poorly because <laughs> Nintendo have cancelled the project. Um, Nintendo announced that Retro Studios will be taking over development of the game. Um, they are starting over, so they're scrapping the existing work, starting from scratch. And this quote comes from Takahashi. We have asked the producer, Kensuke Tanabe, to work in trust and collaboration with the studio that developed the original Metroid Prime series, Retro Studios, in the United States, and restart development from the beginning. By collaborating and developing with Retro Studios, we believe we can make this game something that will meet our fans' expectations. So Federico, what are your initial thoughts on this? As the big Metroid fan amongst us. It is a tragedy uh, because it, this means that we're not going to see this game in 2019. We're not going to see this game in 2020. Probably you think, 2021. You think not even 2020? Oh, no. No. <laughs> Metroid mm. games aren't made in two years. Uh, at least that's what I remember uh, from Retro. Uh, it took forever to do But the first Metroid the original, Prime and the second. When was the original tease? Is it 2017? Well, 2018. 2017, I want to say. E3 probably. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, starting from scratch is rough. Uh, like, <laughs> we just, we, we were throwing everything away and we're redoing it all, which means planning, means art direction, means. Yeah, uh, you, you know, know you're probably right because it was, it was 2017, right? And yeah. we're going into 2019, we we're expecting the game by the end of the year. And you would expect that when they showed that off at E3, they had some stuff in mind and some yeah. work that they had already done. But now yeah. it's kind of like, nope, let's start all over and, again. Uh, and I mean, at this point, what are the chances that this is going to be another Breath of the Wild situation in that this becomes one of the launch titles for the Switch 2 or whatever it's called, the yeah, next Nintendo console? That's a very... Um, well, okay, so... I would say that that makes sense now, but I don't know if they would want to put Metroid as the... Right, sure. But I mean, I'm just saying that it extends the release schedule well into new console territory. Yes, I would say it's probably more likely to be uh, Odyssey to the Nintendo Switch, right? It's like the big follow-up game. So yeah, there'll, probably. there'll be something, whether it's yeah. th- probably going to be the next Zelda game, probably, I reckon, yes. uh, plus this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what I do, 
I mean, it's a tragedy and I'm really sad. I really wanted to play a Metroid game. And I still hope that to sort of, um, uh, while we're waiting, maybe Nintendo will actually remaster the trilogy um, and well, release so, it. Just uh, also a, from uh, Imran Khan, who had the statement about all about the um, the development process, saying that, I saw him also saying about the fact that the trilogy was meant to be announced in December uh, of last year, but but wasn't. Um, and that may be that they wanted to not do that if they were going to, you know, mm-hmm. like to, to not announce that if then four was going to slip so that yeah. maybe it will come maybe sometime this year as like maybe. a thing to maybe hold people over. But I can yeah. understand that like, apparently it's done. So the, the, the trilogy remaster is like, it's, it's done. Yeah. Um, and, but I can understand that maybe they wouldn't want to do that now because they've just had to push four down right. the way a little bit. I am happy that they did this, that they were honest about it, and I'm happy that Retro is doing it again uh, because they did an f- amazing job with the original trilogy of Metroid Prime. They know Metroid. They love Metroid. I am curious to know what actually happened to the other game that mm. Retro was working on. Uh, it just disappeared, and a bunch of people left Retro Studios, and now Retro is working on Metroid. I mean, okay. Yeah, I'm they were doing something, right? They were working on something, but nobody really knew what it was. Okay, so like the other rumors that I've read online, Federico, is that the other game was the remaster of 1, 2, and 3. Like, that was oh, the okay. other game, um, and people left because that project was complete. And okay. then they pitched. And so the other story is there's a lot. Of, I've been reading a lot of forums about this. I don't know how much to believe. So like, take as much of a grain of salt. But the the story goes that Retro actually went to Nintendo and pitched them mm. to do four. Hmm. And then this okay. also led into Nintendo saying, "Ah, maybe what we, we should have is cra- terrible. Well, we, we know that what we have isn't going well. Maybe re- Retro found that out. Maybe Nintendo asked them for some help or something, right? Like, we're struggling. Like, what do you think about this? Maybe something like that was going on. And then Retro apparently went to them and said, like, we have this idea for Metro Prime 4 and we want to make it. And then at that point, Nintendo cut their losses and said, yeah, you can do it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. how the story goes i don't know what, how true that story is or not but. right well so um i i don't know what to think about the future of metroid at this point because we just just have an apology i'm glad that nintendo apologized and made this video it's very um it, it's not the first time nintendo uh issued these apologies as we're gonna see in a few minutes uh with the topic we're gonna talk about today but uh it still feels it, it, the, the 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 message is unprecedented in the sense that to say we're throwing everything away and we're starting from scratch and we have a new studio. I don't remember Nintendo having this kind of this kind of announcement before. Just uh, you know delaying games, but not saying um, we were not happy with it. So we're starting from the beginning. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a little bit unusual. of a difference between it's taken longer than we expected and we suck at this like we did a really bad job and yeah. it's so bad what we've done is so bad we can't keep any of it uh is is a is a kind of a weird i mean i'm making light of it but like that you know in a nutshell they're effectively saying like we couldn't do a good enough job so we're starting again shahid what do you think of the honesty what is your take on like this kind of honesty and getting out about this 
uh, maybe as as early as they as they have. It's the new Nintendo. It's supposed to switch Nintendo. They're a lot more fresh. They're a lot more honest. They're a lot more inclusive and embracing, and this suits their style. One of the things we talked about before Switch launched, when we saw the first trailer, was it definitely has more of an American feel. So it might also be a case of Nintendo of America having more of an influence into communications. Right. Because that would be their style. It's not really so much of a Japanese style. The the Japanese have been embracing a more honest style. And an over-the-top apology is more in keeping with Japanese culture. When I say over the top, I mean by Western standards, not by Japanese standards. Yeah, yeah. That like this, this, um, this video has a real somber feeling to it, right? Like a real like we are really sorry kind of feeling. Uh, right. Which I it's don't like, know. It's okay. It's a video game. Yeah. It's like I don't know if <laughs> don't we would get that kind of tone if it had come from Reggie. Right? Like, right. there might be a little bit more political spin to it. I actually yeah. think it served the apology better to be done in this way. Like, I saw a lot of, so, like, a lot of my uh, theories and, like, not like all the theories and stuff that I read are from the, I would say, pretty excellent Nintendo Switch subreddit community, which is a, is a very, like, typically pretty positive community. Um, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I, I actually quite like the, the switch, uh, subreddit and there were a lot of posts that day. Now this is from like the most hardcore fans and people were like, yeah, I like this. Like, I feel like we're being respected, uh, that they're, tre- you know, like we're obviously we're bummed out about this, but like, you know, like they're treating us with respect and they're being open. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think Nintendo did the best that they could with the cards they had kind of dealt themselves it feels like that they really doom themselves to fail here it's like one of those things where it's like you hear it and you're like you you hear the idea of oh we're just going to chop the game up into a bunch of chunks and different studios around the world are going to make it now i'm sure there are other games made this way but like when i hear that i'm like well yeah of course it's not going to be as good right like i feel like every time you take a project and water it down and split it up you start splitting the message and start splitting the focus and it just it you know on the face of it sounds like a not great strategy to me. Shahid, am I being completely stupid here? Is this done like with every single video game? No, you're being absolutely one hundred percent on the money. Okay, I mean it's just the stupidest idea you could imagine to do it that way. You need intense communication from yeah. the leading directors on each team about the vision, scope, the pillars of the game. There needs to be a constant understanding, and by splitting yep. the teams up. All you're doing is allowing miscommunication to develop. Like I could totally understand like uh like DLC content being developed by a secondary team, right? Like, you know, like that it's part of the game or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, it's gotta be developed in conjunction now because DLC is expected pretty quickly with a lot of these AAA games. So I could totally understand that, but but the full like a full like the full experience, it makes mo- like, it just makes Logical sense to have it being developed by one cohesive team for as much as yeah, it can it, be. It's it's bold. I mean, you got to give credit to Nintendo for trying new production techniques for right. Because if this would have worked, the risk, yeah, it would. Everyone would be saying, "Wow, Nintendo pulled it off." Exactly, because then what it would mean is big first party titles quicker. That's what they were going for here, right? They wanted to see like how many of these games can we make fast 
and mm-hmm. like totally get that because i think what nintendo know is like they know their sales numbers they know how well some stuff like a bunch of stuff has gone for them and you know a lot they're doing great like with with third party titles but these first party titles are just like cleaning up but they didn't have as many of them this year even though again like smash and stuff i think smash is the best selling uh first party launched like for like from a launch perspective from like the beginning if that makes sense like i don't think it sold as many as like pokemon or uh mario or zelda yet but it's like it's really going fast you know like the the kind of the speed of the launch has been the best that they've had i think um so i'm sure that they would love to try and find a way to speed up that development process yeah i mean splitting the disciplines has been more of a traditional approach than splitting the levels in that it's relatively straightforward to outsource huge chunks of art it's relatively straightforward to outsource huge chunks of audio sound effects and music Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and speech right it's relatively easy to do that what it's not easy to do is to maintain some kind of consistency across levels if you split those up yeah and with you know you're going back to your point about dlc one of the reasons that could work with an outside team though I uh, again, I have my doubts about that, and I'll, I'll explain if you really want. But um, one of the reasons that could work better is because often DLC will not necessarily capture the same theme mm-hmm. or feeling mm-hmm. of the original game, and that's absolutely fine, you know, because you want something different. It's a new flavor. I think there's also the interesting um, sub theme, if you will, of Nintendo, uh, and this is like a like an historical thing, but always struggling when it comes to franchises that are more Western-oriented. Um, and Metroid is really the uh, great example of this. Uh, when Nintendo tried to put a Japanese spin on it with other M and using, I think, um, um, Ninja Studio? What's, what's the name? The Shade, what's the name of the, of the folks that did Ninja Gaiden? Um, back oh, in- good question. Team Ninja. Um, Ninja? They use Team Ninja um, to sort of make a Japanese like Metroid, and it was terrible. It was just, it was just a bad game. And also, this, this, you know, when Nintendo has to deal um, with a more Western style gameplay, for example, take a look at what they've done with Mario and Rabbids. They use Ubisoft and European team to take care of, uh, you know, that was a spin-off and they sort of licensed the, the if you will, the characters and the design, but it was a Nintendo game, it was a mm-hmm. Mario game. And so Nintendo, I, I almost feel like they always struggle when they need to create games that that are not Japanese-style video games. Uh, you could argue that Zelda and Mario are games made in Japan. Metroid Prime is not. It's not a Japanese video game. And I want to see how they can fix this going forward um, because clearly the Metroid approach of splitting it up and across multiple teams, I have to assume across Europe and across the United States, didn't work. Well, maybe the fix is just to do what they've done for the past four Metroid games now. Like, maybe Nintendo need to just stop trying. If like, They don't have to be able to do everything because they have a model. Like, this this isn't the only game that Nintendo have ever outsourced to a, to a third-party development studio, right? Like, this is how it's done. Like, one of the biggest Nintendo titles is Pokemon. And 
they've never made Pokemon. Yep. Right. Like it's you know th- th- this is it's a model that they have. I guess like for all we know, they've they've used this development practice for other games and it worked fine. Right. So they were like, well, why don't we just try it with Metroid too? And it, and it didn't work for different reasons. Maybe that like maybe the underlying problem is the fact that like maybe they struggled to just make this game in the way that people expect this game to be made, that they could make a very interesting game, but it wouldn't be Metroid Prime. Right. Like, you know, maybe maybe that's the problem. Um, but anyway, uh, this wasn't the only delay. This one is is not as important, uh, really. Um, but but they did also announce that Mario Kart Tour, which is a, a mobile version of Mario Kart that we know nothing about. Um, we have no idea if it's even a kart racing game. Like nobody knows what this game's going to be. Uh, very much like the Super Mario game, right? Like we didn't know what Super mm-hmm. Mario Run was going to be until they showed it off. Um, that has been delayed until the summer. Um, so we mm. don't know what this is going to look like. Uh, I want to just throw out a wild theory to you all, as that's just popped into my head right now. Okay. So where is Super Mario Run first shown off? Oh, at an Apple event. At an Apple event. Um, there's two potential things that are happening with Apple between now and the summer. Uh, if we discount WWDC, um, there is one, the likelihood of Apple having a press event for uh, to announce some media streaming services, right? In conjunction with that is a rumor which we'll get into at some point, but we're not going to dig into too much today because we're talking about delays today uh, of the idea of Apple making a gaming subscription service where they've apparently contacted a selection of uh, developers and they are trying to put together uh, like a give us some like a Netflix of games basically um, the rumor is not that they're trying to build like what Google is building uh, which is the the idea of having console games streaming to devices this is a like you're a good developer you're a good developer you're a good developer we're going to package your games up and sell them um, and if you're in our platform everyone gets a cut kind of thing now, there is a, if you think, right, like Nintendo were unhappy with the money made from Super Mario Run. So I'm sure that they would be, mm. they would be amenable to some better revenue promises. Maybe Apple could give them those, right? Uh, maybe it could give them some better projections and a free to play model may get them. I don't know. That's just my madcap theory that just popped into my head, but it's d- delayed until the summer. Uh, so we don't we don't know anything about that. Um, in the Polygon article for Mario Kart Tour, and there's well, one Nintendo said that they're doing this in order to improve quality of the application, expand the content offerings after launch, which is just a nothing statement. But I like that Polygon wrapped up that article by saying, "Worried Nintendo fans might want to remind themselves of one of the more famous quotes from Mario and Zelda creator Shigeru Miyamoto." A delayed game is eventually good, but a rushed game is forever bad, which is one of Mm -hmm. Federico's favorite quotes, too. Yes. And I just thought I would mention that as a way to sum up Nintendo's uh, confusion and delay at the moment. Mm. I also do wonder if that quote, while really, really, it's a really good quote and a really good uh, way to look at shipping products, whether it's an article or a podcast or a video game or whatever, I do ask myself sometimes 
how much it still applies in the age of software updates and patches and staggered releases with DLCs and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, it well, feels allow like- me to, to ruin Shigeru's amazing quote by saying, a delayed game is eventually good, but a rushed game reviews bad. And that maybe yeah. that's that's the real problem, right? You you yeah. don't want it to review bad because it, it's hard to come back from a that. Bit too strong. Yeah. It's forever. Uh, maybe reviews bad sounds better uh, yeah. today. Yes, today. I agree. Because that that will that can be the death knell for a game, right? Like you can put as much content as you want into it, but if you don't get that initial buy-in, it, it can it can struggle. You know, you maybe you have to wait for x2 right like the second version of that game for them for the people that like the first one after it got better to be like yeah it gets better and you know it's the it's the no man's sky problem basically yeah the no man's sky problem yeah but see that this is where the model breaks down because uh, it first of all um going back to no man's sky i don't mean to sound defensive but didn't review badly just didn't review as well initially as people thought it was underwhelming for for a game with the, with a game with the hype that it had, underwhelming reviews were bad for it. Yeah, the point is that it got better and better and better, so oh, it didn't yeah. get destroyed. Yeah, so an initial bad review doesn't necessarily destroy a game. There are plenty of examples no. on on PC where a game will start off yeah meh, but then you see a developer uh, continues to commit to it. And it gets better and better and better. I don't know if you saw there's an interesting... Well, my point more is that, like, No Man's Sky will carry around its uh, launch with it forever, right? Like, that's the point. Like, people will remember that. And and people yeah, remember I th- the... I mean, it was ridiculous, right? Like, the way that people kind of made that game into a kind of a symbol for something um but you know i'm just saying like you know people people don't forget that and yes the game has got better but i i don't think that it has as many players as it could have if it had launched with the way that people expected it to whether rightly or wrongly but we could spend all day talking about this yeah yeah. i mean i mean i don't think any of the people involved in it financially are complaining at all no i think it's 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 continued to do well it's an outlier though very few games survive that. You know, what happened to it at launch, very few games survive it. But there is a new culture where games are not launched with such a big bang. I think the, the, this is the point that follows it. There are so many games now that are launched, perhaps in early access, that are given the time to breathe. And it's because it's effectively a soft launch. What is a launch nowadays anyway? You know, even in the world of mobile, you can soft launch something to underwhelming reviews in New Zealand. And then huh, yes. finesse it, finesse it, finesse it, I finesse love it. The New Zealand. I, I love the New Zealand way of doing things. <laughs> it's always so funny to me because it's kind of just like, it's it's off all the time zones that everybody else is, right? So like the reporting and the, the sharing of game media becomes more difficult, uh, like sharing of like social media stuff. But they speak English and they have good internet, right? Like it's kind of like a fascinating thing because it's like this small country, a smaller country maybe, like in population, that they, the, yeah, it's, the, I, it's I, the microcosm of the Western world. Yeah, there was. I wished I could remember the name of the game. Oh man, the, like the first one that I remember doing this. It was one of these. Like it was a super early, like city building game that had like a kind of a medieval theme to it. Do either of you have any idea what I'm talking about right now? This is an iPad game. It was like an iOS game. That was 
uh, it was like free to play. It had all of the like free to play things when they were early. And it was like a city building game. And but like you had to do like some farming stuff and you built castles. Man, I wish I could remember the name of this game. But I I remember it launched in New Zealand first, but this was back when you didn't need to sign like attach a credit card to an iTunes profile. So anyone could just mm. download it. But uh, anyway, so yeah, we're going to now, uh, so this this is the framing of this episode. We've set up the idea that like Nintendo is going through these delays. So we should, I want to, we want to look at delays as an idea. So we're going to get into talking about some, some history. So we're going to, Federico is going to take us down memory lane to look at some, some mm-hmm. notorious uh, delayed games. But before we do, let me thank Squarespace for their support of this show. You can make your next move with Squarespace and create a website for your next idea. Squarespace gives you a unique domain name. You can get award-winning templates and so much more. They have 24-7 customer support on hand if you need any help. But it's so easy to use. They've got everything covered for you. There is nothing to install or patch or upgrade. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that will make putting your next idea or maybe your next event, uh, your next portfolio or store or blog online. No matter what type of website you want to make, they've got everything right there, which is why I've used Squarespace for years. I don't know how to build websites. I've never wanted to take the time to learn. I've just used Squarespace. I think I've been using Squarespace for 10 years now, maybe more, because it's just easy for me to be able to get something. When When I have an idea for a project, in the timeline of that project, it's not like, right, build, spend six weeks building the website. No, I want to get it done in a day and have something that looks and works and seems professional the whole way through. And that's what Squarespace will get you. But don't take my word for it. Go sign up for a free trial. Go to squarespace.com slash remaster. You can sign up and play with it. And then when you're ready to launch your website out to the world, you can sign up for a plan. The plans start at just $12 a month, but you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this show by using the code remaster. So that's squarespace.com slash remaster and the code remaster for 10% off your first purchase our thanks to squarespace squarespace make your next move make your next website all right so i gathered some examples of um historical and and popular uh video game delays um two of these games still have to come out so one of them <laughs> uh-huh. is coming out next week finally the other at a at an, an unspecified I'm, I'm still time. not even convinced it will be out next week we'll get to it but like a, a, anything d- can I, anything can happen still, i don't believe that. it either but we'll see <laughs> uh, and the other game as we'll see is a kickstarter uh that will come out in theory during 2019 but who knows um so i collected some examples and the first one which is kind of the um, sort of became a joke on the internet as uh, a synonym for uh, vaporware or a game that would never come out. But actually, it did uh, almost uh, 15 years after it was announced. Uh, we're talking about Duke Nukem Forever. Uh, <laughs> this became a meme, and rightfully so. It was announced in 1997 by the developers at 3D Realms um there was a uh, I remember because I was reading video game magazines I remember mm-hmm. the announcement of a new Duke Nukem coming um 
1998 rolls along and 3D Realms is still working on it. Uh, and they kept, at that point, they kept delaying the game until um, 2001. So four years later, um, we're already approaching <laughs> a long time territory here when it comes to video game delays. So four years after the original teaser, um, they just said, uh, the game is not done, we'll, we will release it when it's done. Uh, so just that statement. Um, six years pass without nothing. So this is wild because this is before Twitter. This is before Reddit. This is before the internet as we know it. So the you know the people were complaining. I remember in the mail section of video game magazines. Every once in a while, somebody would write in and say, "What happened to Duke Nukem Forever?" And there would be articles about the fact that it was vaporware. It was never going to happen. Um, 2007, uh, surprise teaser trailer. Again, the graphics are all different. The game is all different. Uh, but 3D Realms is back and they're showing off a trailer. Two years later, 2009, 3D Realms uh, gets downsized. Um, the team that was working on Duke Nukem is no more. Um, but they kept saying that the game had gone gold. And they were releasing screenshots of a game that was supposedly coming out soon. Um, except for the fact that in 2010, 2K Games, which was the publisher of Duke Nukem Forever, said that the game was now under a different developer. Gearbox software, uh, so it had changed hands from one developer to another, and eventually, in 2011, uh, 14 years after the first trailer, uh, the game came out, and it was kind of terrible. Uh, it was not it was not a good video game. Who thought um, that Duke Nukem Forever was going to be a good video game anyway? Well, at the point. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it it was never going to be like a. Like a, a, a like straight no. up good video game. No, especially for the fact that um, Duke Nukem, I think, had its reason to exist in the era where 3D video games were like just funny for the sake of being funny, like bad jokes it and was adult of its themes. Time. It was of its time. It, it it didn't grow with the times. And it reached a point where they just wanted to release it because it had become a meme. And so people were more excited about the fact that Duke, that Duke Nukem Forever was actually coming out than the game itself. So it, it's, it was popular because of the story, not because it was a good game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not a good game. So um, there's a there's going to be a link in the show notes collecting all of the trailers spanning two centuries, really, um, uh, featuring all the versions of uh, Duke Nukem Forever that were ever uh, shown in public. Um, really, uh, but this is a. I don't think this is a good uh, case study for video game delays uh, because this is the exception. But it's the meme. It's the most popular one. Um, I should I I I just I needed to mention this one. Mm-hmm. The more fascinating one is the a Nintendo game, Zelda Breath of the Wild. Uh this is where I want to get Shahid's input if he's a, if he if he wants to. Um Breath of the Wild was announced with the first teaser gameplay trailer featuring Miyamoto and Eiji Aonuma at the Game Awards 2015, so we're talking December 2014, sorry. Um, 
and it was supposed to come out in 2015. They were showing off gameplay. Uh, it was a Wii U game at the time. The Switch did not exist. Uh, and it was on schedule to be released in 2015. Then uh, a surprising thing happened. Nintendo did one of its apology videos. So this could be considered the grandfather of the Metroid Prime video. Eiji Aonuma apologizing for the fact that Breath of the Wild was not was not going to come out in 2015 uh they were going to miss their release schedule of by the end of the year and it was postponed to some i think some point in 2016 or maybe they just didn't give a release date um and what's fascinating about this is that Aonuma said during it's not that the game was not good uh, which is interesting they said during development we discovered more possibilities than we originally imagined and we realized we could have released the game in 2015, but we want Zelda to be unique, and there's so much more that we can do. We actually want to make it even better than it currently is in our hands, so we kind of want to expand the game until it's u- more unique than it is right now. Um, and sure enough, they showed another trailer at E3 2016, uh, and it, the game was already, uh, you could tell that it was richer and more with more flexibility in terms of like what you can do. They showed off like the different weather conditions, Link cooking different meals, um, different ways to tackle enemies. It, it looked like a different game. And of course, Nintendo then said, uh, it's not just a Wii U game anymore. It's also coming to the Switch and it will be a launch title for the Switch. And so... In March 2017, uh, uh, almost two years later than originally expected, Breath of the Wild launched on the Nintendo Switch and the Wii U. Um, I wanted to ask Shahid, um, this is a fascinating example to me because it's not that the game was bad or was not ready, but they discovered this sort of this physics engine and they realized, oh, we can do more with this stuff. Um, Does this usually happen that developers are working on a game and then realize well maybe we can actually do a bit more with this only to developers with enormous sacks of money behind them Mm. and in this case of course nintendo do have that i guess there are two ways of taking what happened here the first is to take nintendo at face value sure and the other is to suggest that their statement was somewhat disingenuous And without wishing to guess which of those it was, it's extremely rare that during the development of a game, you discover some kind of new system. Because they would have known about that when they started development. There would have been a scope for the game. There would have been a design for the game. You know, they would have worked all of that out. They would have had a production plan. They would have been well into that production plan. And they would have had level building and so on. I think what's potentially more likely is that they realized that when the game came out, they were so close to Switch launching and Switch was so exciting, they thought, maybe the game is going to be wasted. What can we do to hold this back? Maybe we could expand it. What could we do to expand the game? And somebody would have had those discussions within the development team. Someone high up would have said, listen, guys, where we're being asked by exec management what we could do if instead of shipping now this was a switch launch title what could you add 
and we've got six months to scope this out. So go to town. And that's the point at which I would imagine they would expand the scope, expand the possibilities and add stuff. Because the stuff they're talking about usually gets designed in from the start. It's almost never the case that you increase the scope of a game during development. It's nearly always the case that you decrease the scope. So to me, that suggests rather than a looming deadline, they're just being given an expanded deadline. Which is probably why they ended up with like the phrasing of, which is different to this time, right? With Metroid is like, we think the game can be more rather than it's not good enough. Right. And so what's what I think is kind of funny about the uh, the Zelda specifically, uh, if you are intrigued to see what me and Federico thought about all of this, yes. <laughs> it all exists. So yes. virtual episode 17 and 33, and then remaster 13. So when we rebranded the show when Shahid uh, agreed to come on board, um, it's funny because I know I know what what happens. It's just yeah. my growing disbelief at yes. Nintendo's ability to create the game that they said they were going to make. We were skeptical when we saw the first uh, gameplay yeah. video. Yeah, we said, "Well, it looks kind of boring. <laughs> you just wander around on a horse and well, do the, nothing." The world was super empty, but I just yeah. I just refused to believe Nintendo in twenty fifteen. Uh, had the ability to, or 2014 when we first saw it, I guess, had the ability to create a game like the Breath of the Wild. Because at that time, they were just miss after miss, right? Like it was not going good for Nintendo. Uh, but yeah, then they ended up proving me wrong and making my favorite video game of all time. So yeah. <laughs> thank you, Nintendo. <laughs> Next up, and this is the game that is, uh, in theory, launching next week, is Crackdown 3. My uh, God. Xbox One game, uh, sequel to Crackdown 2, which came out in 2010. So this story is also a bit wild, in the sense that Crackdown 3 uh, was announced in June 2016, uh, 2014, sorry, June 2014, almost five years ago, as a 2016 game. And the this was early Xbox One days. Did, and no, the big, Crackdown 3 was part of the original Xbox One presentation. All because right, there you go. it was the game that they used to talk about their... Fa- yes. What ended up being a failure of yep. always online, no discs. And by doing that, it allows us to make this world that you can destroy the, and all that stuff. It was the poster child. There was, they show it off as an example of Microsoft Azure technology yep. that was going to use cloud-based artificial intelligence to power the part of the physics engine for the destruction of any building in the world of Crackdown yep. 3. Basically um, allowing for power that the console couldn't, couldn't yeah. give, uh, so it did it in the cloud and rendered it to the console effectively. The game, for all we know publicly, and of course I'm sure that behind the scenes it's a bit more complicated than this, but publicly what we can see is that the game went through multiple delays. Um, 
after it missed its 2016 deadline, um, Microsoft said, we're going to release the game by the end of 2017, and it's going to be a launch title for the Xbox One X. So the more powerful version of the Xbox One uh, that was originally known as Scorpio uh, a few years ago. Uh, And of course, it missed that deadline of November 2017. Microsoft said uh, it's going to come out uh, in 2018. We need more time to finish this game. In the meantime, a studio, uh, because I think that multiple studios or multiple uh, sub-teams were involved in this, uh, but one studio called, I think, Cloud Gene, uh, Cloud Engine, that's a terrible name, uh, was acquired by Epic Games. And at E3 um, 2018, so last year, June 2018, Microsoft said um, there's a new developer, uh, I think it's called Sumo Digital, uh, that is now taking care of finishing the game. And the game was delayed again. Uh, from 2018 to early 2019. And now, in theory, it's coming out next week, I think February 15, 2019, um, in theory. No, it, it's coming out. Like, you know, it, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, being, yeah. I'm being facetious. But effectively, at this point, I mean, yeah, so there aren't reviews of it yet. There are early hands-on stuff like mm-hmm. that from, from a bunch of uh, publications. I want to read to you uh, a line from Colin Campbell's um, is is from his conclusion on Polygon. Okay. Oh, God. Uh, Okay. It's not the Marvel it was originally supposed to be, nor the broadly appealing platform-exclusive blockbuster that Microsoft needs it to be. I suspect it will serve best as a decent attraction on the company's good value Xbox Game Pass subscription service. Effectively, it's become a big kind of multiplayer shooter game. Uh, an open worldy type shooter game. They added Terry Crews to it at one point, and yeah. Terry Crews is is in, again like as a I think another way to try and find a new selling point for the game. Um, but to be honest, it seems to have been watered down an awful lot. Um, and really, at this point, it feels like they put so much money into this and so much time. At least have it as a game that nobody's probably going to buy, but people will play because it comes for quote-unquote free with mm-hmm. their Game Pass, which, you know, is a perfectly valid uh, thing to do. But honestly, every Microsoft-exclusive title that's new needs to be helping sell the Game Pass, where I think what this does is just serves as a, as a game for existing Game Pass subscribers to have something new to play. Is effectively what this is what this is going to yeah. be, which is a shame because should have been could have been more. Lo- mm-hmm. Actually, a lot should have could have with Crackdown. Really, uh, I can't believe it was 2014. What happened here, Shahid? <laughs> you know what? Um, this is one of those situations where I'm afraid I know so much under NDA that Ooh. I'm not allowed to talk about. Ah. <laughs> but I can tell you some general stuff yes. okay. that could be that could be ascertained publicly. There were a, a lot of people involved. There were a lot of changes. There were technical issues. And there were scope changes. Key people moved around. Mm. And all of these things create dramatic knock-on effects in the production schedule because you know every time let's say for example you change 
some of the programming team or you get a new team to take on something. Like, for example, in this case, Ruffian and Dundee, who are an excellent developer, did the entire multiplayer section of the game. Yeah, that, that didn't happen from day one. As far as I'm aware, might have done, actually. There are other developers uh, involved as well. Plus the fact that um, I would imagine not everybody who was working on it was totally familiar with Unreal to begin with. So they would have had to have got used to that. Of course, there were plenty of people who were used to it. But one of the reasons really large games can sometimes get delayed is lack of familiarity with an engine and its strengths and weaknesses. And that is particularly exacerbated when you have large teams who are spread out all over the place. Mm. I think the biggest problem really happened at the beginning, you know, that all of the stuff with um, Jones moving around, you know, being part of CloudGen and maybe that tech was not all that they thought it was, or maybe it was a case of, well, this is not necessarily going to add some to the game, or the things that they're shooting for in the game wouldn't be possible with this tech. Yeah, well, then I, there was well epic, I think, you as know. you say, it was kind of just like, this game was created to show off technology that Microsoft ultimately did not ship. So then what do you do? Right. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, your your game's entire kind of USP is is gone. And you know what you were saying at the start about, like, all of those different things that can happen? I guess the problem with a game development cycle like this one is the longer it takes, the more of those things will happen, right? Like, this game probably had every conceivable thing that can delay a game happen to it because it took probably, like, eight years to develop, right? Like, in, in total, right? Like, you imagine in June 2014, it maybe been in development for a year or two. You know, like, we're looking at six seven years or something who knows right like how long it was actually in development for but like it's just it's just way too many at that point and by that point everyone's going to have moved on us you know like mm-hmm. like it, 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 it's uh well i'll say this to to bring that game over the line at all was a herculean achievement yes yes so the people who were there right at the end hats off to them for to pulling have made it off. something which is a decent game is kind of unbelievable, really. Yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because I know stuff, I can't say, but I'm sure. I'm telling you for a fact, it's unbelievable that this game came out, and the people who were there at the end did a magnificent job. Absolutely magnificent job. I guess my favorite thing, you know, like favorite in inverted commas, is the fact that the studio that was developing it got bought by another company. Like that's my, I think my favorite thing about this story. It's just like, that is bonkers, right? Like that's such a wild thing to happen. It's like studio was working on it. Game's not out. Studio gets bought. (laughs) It's just like, right, all right. (laughs) Guess it needs a new studio now. Yeah. Absolutely wild. Just, just wild. You know, Duke Nukem is like the, 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 the poster child for these things, but Crackdown 3 is, I think, is my personal favorite. Mm. I'm pleased that you included this, Federico. Um, the final example is a different type of game in that it started out as a Kickstarter campaign 
And we've seen enough Kickstarter campaigns go badly or face uh, really no- noticeable delays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one, I feel like, is a, is a good example of this massive category that is uh, video game Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, uh, the spiritual successor to Castlevania, developed by Koji Igarashi himself after he left Konami in 2014. Um, now, Igarashi was inspired by a wave of Kickstarter revivals of old video games, and most notably the campaign for Mighty Number no. One, also a spiritual successor to Mega Man, created by Inafune, the creator of the series. Um, that inspired Igarashi after the uh, exiting from Konami, uh, and he started pitching different pub- publishers for a game inspired by Castlevania, because of course he couldn't make Castlevania because Kon- mm-hmm. Konami still holds the rights to Castlevania. Uh, publishers, uh, apparently over 20 uh, publishers, were not interested in the game, and eventually it reached the point where there was an interest, uh, a publisher that was interested in the project, but they wanted to have some kind of proof that this type of game could garner the interest of people. And so, inspired by Mighty Number no. One, they launched a Kickstarter campaign in May 2015. And originally, they set out a goal of half a million dollars to cover, I think they said at the time, 10 or 15% of the final production cost of the game, but they raised um, $1.5 million in the first day. And the project became, once the campaign closed, the at the time, the most funded video game campaign on Kickstarter with $5.5 million. I think the record is now held by Shenmue 3 with over $6 million, but it's close. It's one of the top pledged Kickstarter campaigns for video games. Now, is Shenmue late? Shenmue's late, right? Yeah, Shenmue's it is late. late. Yeah, it is, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's it's over the, a year at this point. <laughs> what's peculiar? What's peculiar for Bloodstained, which is going to be over two years late, um, is it was set to launch in 2017, and among the platforms that were promised as you know, because it was a multi-platform game, uh, there was the PS Vita. The Nintendo oh my Wii god. U. Oh my god. The the <laughs> Mac and Linux. All of these four have been dropped in the meantime. And so the oh. PS Vita version is no more, the Wii U version is no more, but they're making a Switch version. Uh, Mac and Linux were dropped in December 2018. So two they months ago. The Mac version? Yeah. Yeah. That's they were canceled. Wild. They like, were canceled. I understand dropping the Vita version, because what are you gonna do? Right? And I understand, and the Wii U stru- like, but like, but the Wii U, but they replaced it with the Switch, right? Which is like perfectly valid. But I assume that they just like the Mac will not get this game, which is a real shame, I think, because yeah. there's what are you going to do at that point? Like you're kind of stuck if you wanted to play it on the yeah. Mac. And now the game is launching in 2019. At some point, we don't know when. Last year, uh, I think Inti Creates released a, they call it a D-make, like a 2D 
uh, pixel art version uh, of Bloodstained. It's like a spin-off that they made in the meantime for some reason. And it's apparently it's even a decent <laughs> video game. Um, so there's a 2D version of Bloodstained that came out last year that you can play. But the real one, uh, in the mean t- in in the past four years, dropped four platforms. They had to issue refunds. Uh, they had to deal with people saying. Um, I don't have Wii U anymore, so now I want the Switch game. It's a whole mess. Uh, but it's coming out. It's coming out at some point this year. And I guess the lesson here, uh, if there's a lesson to learn, is Kickstarter campaigns for video games are going to be late. Um, oh, I've had some that just were cancelled. Or like, just cancelled. Or just it's like a scam yeah. and it's, yeah, it yeah. was like, it's never coming out. Um, but also, I think it makes for an interesting example in the sense that the technological progress of different platforms affects the original promise of the campaign. So the PS Vita doesn't doesn't make much sense to make a PS Vita version anymore. And the Wii U, sure, was the Nintendo console at the time, but four years later, the Wii U is no more. So now you got to make a Switch version. Um, so the idea of while video games are being delayed the world around them changes. Mm-hmm. And so developers, not only do they face the issue of finishing the game, but often they face the problem of finishing the game for another platform, <laughs> for another console, which is a, a whole additional layer of complications. And I feel like this one is a good example of that. That's a wonderful example. You know, I, I do feel like... Um, oh, maybe this is a whole... Maybe Kickstarter in general is a topic for another time, but... Uh, personally, as as somebody who is interested in these games, I do much prefer the green light systems because mm, there should be another episode. <laughs> at least I'm getting something, even though yeah. it's unfinished. Where a lot of Kickstarter games they get funded and they maybe die if they ever, you know, like. And so at least, and, and I know that you have to go a certain element, like you have to get a part of the way there um, when you're when you when you have a green light game, which in some, for some games is not possible. But do you, do you mean early access? Yes. Mm-hmm. Steam is group called their, their early access is called green light, but yeah, just early access in general, right? Like no, that that early they change it. Yeah, early oh, access and green light are different. Yeah. Okay. It's all track. very confusing. I'm thinking yeah. of early access. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. What is green light again? Then <laughs> green light is just being able to get onto Steam. Right. Okay. Okay. So yes, I mean early access. Thank you. Yeah. So like you know, like with early access games, you do you get something, right? Like you get something. It might not be good. It might not be finished, but you you get something. And with Kickstarter and, and other crowdfunding platforms, typically the idea is like when you hear about this, we've not even started. And, you know, or we have like very cursory work done. It's not in any kind of state. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Maybe it's, that's a that's a topic for another time. Um, yeah. But we would be remiss if we did not uh, ask Shahid some more in-depth questions about kind of mm-hmm. what, what it's like to be on the inside working with these types of issues. Um, but let me thank our second sponsor of this week's episode, and that is ExpressVPN. <laughs> Since the last time... That I've told you about ExpressVPN. <laughs> there have been more online security breaches. It just feels oh, like no. I could just keep, I could just keep saying that. Like our data is becoming an economy that is traded without our input, 
and the ability to try and get a little bit more uh, privacy and security and se- and like data secrecy in your life is becoming something that we all need more and more. Chances are you're being tracked by social media sites and marketing companies, your internet provider even, companies that want to take your data and sell it for their own profit. You can take back your privacy with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address. You can turn on ExpressVPN connection with just uh, protection with just one click. They have easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your devices, and it costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you ever use public Wi-Fi, you should be using ExpressVPN. I, when I was traveling recently to Seattle, I had it on my iPhone, my iPad, and my MacBook, and it worked great. But I also use ExpressVPN because because I live in Europe. Uh, sometimes I can't read articles. Right, like this is an actual thing. This isn't even like a oh, I want to watch Netflix thing. This is like, I want to read this LA Times article and they're like, oh no, we couldn't be bothered to implement GDPR. So like, you just can't read this. But using ExpressVPN, I can say that I'm in America and it will let me. So that's a great reason to use ExpressVPN. So protect your online activity today. Go to expressvpn.com slash remaster. If you don't want your online history in the hands of your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer for you. Go to expressvpn.com slash remaster and you will get three months free of a one-year package. Once more, that's expressvpn.com slash remaster for three months extra free of a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and FM. So Shahid, you've touched on some of this stuff as we were going through some of the specific game titles, but I want to kind of ask you as like kind of like a just from a broad kind of overview, what are the typical things that can lead to delays of games? So we've kind of been over like development deadlines and staffing issues, but one that I wanted to ask you about was marketing reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, the biggest marketing reason for delaying a game would be because it would otherwise occupy the same slot as a major competitor. And this is particularly the case in a large AAA game. Right. I remember a few years back, Warner decided to release Batman in August because they wanted to miss the rush that was starting in September. And that turned out to be spectacularly successful as a tactic for them yep. and laid waste to the idea that in summer, nobody buys games. Well, that's just been a truism. <laughs> Nobody for a long buys time. games in the summer because there are no games in the summer. That's that's the reason. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> I mean, it's, right? Exactly. I mean, for a long, long time that'd been the case. But the games market had grown massively. Yeah. And of course, people wanted to play video games in the summer. They didn't have other competing activities anymore because they were gamers, right? Yeah. So that was brilliant by Warner. They deliberately chose August to release Batman. And I guess, and, you know, the, the uh, Rockstar's problem, right? Like, right. if there's a Rockstar game, delay your game. <laughs> Just yeah. delay your game because you're not going to win that week. Yeah, and we found when I was at PlayStation, a whole bunch of independent developers, we found ourselves advising them that January might be better. Because December, forget it. You know, you're up against sales, you're up mm-hmm. against promos, you're up against AAA. All the attention is there. And you know what? It didn't hurt their sales. In fact, if yeah, anything, well, it probably it would help, help them. Right? Because yeah, I would assume as yeah. as 
PlayStation, you're looking for stuff to promote on the store and nobody else is releasing anything. So right. it, I, I would assume it does not hurt somebody's chances to get promotion from the platform vendors and on uh, gaming media, right? Exactly. You're competing for attention. You're no longer competing for money. I know people complain about how much they spend on games, mm -hmm. but actually that's, a, that, that's a, a vocal minority, a vociferous vocal minority, who would hate on anything no matter how cheap. I mean, I mean they, they'd hate on a game if it was free. Yeah. Man, free is too much. But the truth is, it's not the money, it's the attention and the time. They could have used that time. What they really mean is they could have used that time to download a better game. Mm -hmm. That's what's valuable to people. What do you do, though, as a developer of a game who is delaying for marketing reasons? Like, what do you, what do you say? You say thank you. Right, okay. You, you say thank you because, you know, now you're not going to get your sales massacred by something else. And the other game will be happy as well. The, the developers of the other game will be happy too. Right. But I mean, I mean like, but what do you say to your to the people that want your game? Well, with the bigger guys, it's well-researched. There's mm -hmm. a lot of intelligence. Mm -hmm. They know when these things are happening. So it doesn't actually happen that often. Right, okay. And also, the best thing to do is to delay the announcement of the actual release okay. for as long as possible until you know the exact date. The other thing people do, and um, you'll, you'll have seen this at many press conferences, is rather than they start off by announcing a year, then they'll <laughs> announce a quarter. <laughs> Actually, before the quarter, they'll, they'll announce season. the season. They'll yeah, say, yeah. exactly, uh -huh. you know, they'll announce the season. Because then you get a couple of quarters in there for some exactly, of them. Exactly, and, and they're ill-defined, you know. Yep. Summer can drag on, man. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> when I mean, the sun the... comes back out <laughs> i mean in the shed today it's 19.5 celsius and i've barely had the heating on so i don't know maybe summer could stretch <laughs> all the way back to february who knows um or february the next year so there's that and then you start to hone in on an actual date yeah and that is very often the case and you know what people are really really reluctant to commit to an absolute cast iron date in advance for very very good reasons as for the development team, what would normally happen is that date would be announced while there was still some kind of alpha or beta um, process going on. And that, in fact, would be a relief because it would allow them to fix more bugs. Yeah. Uh, very often it can be a boon. Very rarely is it the case that you have a game coming out that is really, really perfect on day one. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time it happened. When was the last time you saw a game come out that didn't have a day one patch? And that Ooh. indicates the development team was working all the way up until... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, even Zelda had, had uh, day one updates to my memory. Right, these games are huge. Yeah. And the amount of cases that they have to cover is just astonishing. Yeah, There's every, no other creative medium that has as many edge cases as video games. Every minute that you get to work on it more is more chance to fix something, right? Right, and that, that goes up exponentially for a multiplayer game. Yes. Because you just don't know until the games hit the servers and everyone's going at it, what could happen, what no matter how many cases? tests you run. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess that it becomes even trickier when a big game like a Red Dead Redemption gets delayed, right? Because that ruins everyone's plans. I would assume, right? Because I, I like from what you were saying, like uh, the idea that that obviously the the big publishers 
have a sense for Red Dead's coming out. It's obviously going to come out in November of this year or whatever, right? Like, because it's it's going to be a holiday game. So we either ship early or we go later or whatever. But then that, like, Red Dead was delayed. So, like, that must be a real difficult situation to be in at that point when you've 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 targeted your release and then based upon that information you thought you had but then you have to change it because of factors that have got nothing to do with you at that point yeah it's very very hard to handle that it's, there's almost no contingency you can build for it the only thing you can count on is the fact that so many of these games are sequels that you expect that your your fans of that game are going to buy the sequel regardless. So, for example, whenever FIFA comes out, nobody cares what other games are coming out. If you like FIFA, you will buy FIFA. And you know it's going to get better year on year. You know it's going to be rock solid in terms of timing because the changes are mostly incremental. And the same with just about any other large game. If you like Batman, you're going to want the next Batman. If you like the first Red Dead, not only are you going to like or likely to like the sequel... But you're going to have brought in so many other fans that you've told about the original Red Dead and bored to tears about it, mm-hmm. that it's going to expand that base. Nothing's going to stop you buying that game and playing it. So, Shahid, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, I went through, so you, you posted um, a question on Twitter a few days ago, asking for examples of video game delays and why they happen. Um, and a common theme that I saw in the replies to that tweet was the idea that optimism when it's um it, it can ruin a project and can lead to delays because people it's not just that people are unable to estimate um but also that some managers tend to be overly optimistic about yes yes we can get it done by the end of the year or those kinds of deadlines how do you deal with um an excess of optimism when working with a studio to finish a video game you can't it's human nature. Any creative endeavor begins with enthusiasm. You might have heard of the, the joke six phases of a large project. It's enthusiasm, followed by disillusionment, followed by panic and hysteria, <laughs> followed by a hunt for the guilty, followed by punishment to the innocent, and finally reward for the uninvolved. God, that's so good. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I read this decades ago. And um, at the time, I was a very cynical and sarcastic person. I became a lot more um, uh, optimistic and positive uh, a few years back. And I found a really startling correlation between those phases, if you map them out uh, across a timeline, compared to the graph that you create when you examine the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? So with the Dunning-Kruger effect, you plot across the time axis, experience, and on the y-axis, confidence. Mm-hmm. Now, you start <laughs> off very, very high up on the y-axis, right? So everybody's really confident. Yeah, man, this is going to be absolutely fantastic. This is going to be the greatest game of all time. It's going to have this feature, that feature. It's going to sell millions, right? But your experience of developing this experience is zero, particularly if there's innovation. Yes, you might have developed a video game. You might have developed several video games. But you are fooling yourself if you think there won't be the same challenges. Otherwise, experienced people will come up with mitigation plans. Here's our production plan. Here's how we can definitely do it. Because these people want the project to happen. That's why they're optimists, right? 
people fool themselves right at the beginning with a high level of enthusiasm and a low level of experience on that project because every project is unique, right? And so as you go along the timeline, suddenly you're in the pit of disillusionment. Um, and that happens very quickly indeed. And the reason is you start to realize that, hey, this project is no different from any other. It's going to come with the same set of technological and creative risks, except that we've added some innovation to the mix. No one's ever done this before. There's nobody else we can ask about this. There are no established timelines. And guess what? We don't even know if this problem can be solved. And you're talking about this game, right? And you're saying things about it publicly, which, of course, is very dangerous. And as you start to realize some of the things that you were wildly enthusiastic about are not possible, you have to start cutting back. You have to make that decision. Of course, you don't make that decision, even if you're experienced, because exec management who signed off on a game specifically because you promised this feature are going to have a field day. You don't want the game to be killed. You don't want the team to be destroyed. You want this game to come out, and you still think that the game you're going to produce is going to be worthwhile. Right? So there you go. There, there's the Dunning-Kruger effect mapped against the project phases. I don't know if anyone else has ever done that, but that was the thing that I realized. And the, the biggest problem with estimating any project in video games is because it is more complex than any other creative form. In software, in the creation of software, because there are so many known problems, and you're more or less tying pieces together, and because UX is much more straightforward, in other words, there are a known set of UXs that work really well, it, you've got much better methodologies for handling that. It's much more technological than creative. But with video games, you're talking about the constant interaction of a human being. Every single human being will have a different emotion. Every single human being will have their own way of playing the game. You've got everyone up from speedrunners down to complete beginners. So you have people asking the question, well, can you make it possible for me to just skip this section so I can get to the next bit? Because otherwise, I'm never going to experience the whole game. And then you've got the case where in so many games you have multiplayer oh my goodness now you have multiplayer how are you ever going to work that out and then massively multiplayer these are the kind of games that become services of course so how do you de-risk that the only effective way i've ever found of de-risking a timeline for a video game is to work on the sequel straight away why because you have a known set of problems you are going to solve the same problems again, but you're going to maybe change some content. You're going to maybe fix some bugs. You're going to maybe have worked out a solution to one of the issues that you found impossible in the original. So you remember when Destiny 2 came out, the developers said quite publicly, this is what Destiny 1 should have been. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. And I bet you they were able to plan Destiny 2 much more accurately and plot it much more accurately than Destiny 1. Hmm. So what's the role of DLCs and this, this trend that I, uh, I guess it's grown over the past three, four years maybe? The season pass. So the idea of upselling people on more content, even though you're paying up front, but you will get that content eventually. How does that tie into um, trying to release a game on schedule, but also delaying some of the content and making it seem like 
like a like a whole menu of content. I mean, years ago it would have been a single game. Now you can do the season pass, and you're free to sort of stagger your releases in multiple batches, if you will. So I'll say this: two, maybe even three decades ago, it would cost you what thirty, forty pounds to buy a console game. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Doesn't cost that much more now. Say fifty pounds. But you know what? Technology is now several orders of magnitude, perhaps two orders of magnitude more powerful, maybe even three. I'm not sure. I have to do the, yeah, looking back at the the processes and so on. The amount of detail required has gone up massively. Can you imagine a 500 person team making a game 30 years ago? Wouldn't have happened. But now, for many of the AAAs, not only is that number normal, but that number is often exceeded. These people might be working on a new game for two years, three years, four years. Can you imagine how much that costs? Right. And at the end of the day, the price is exactly the same. So technologically, it's better. In terms of gameplay, it's better. There's more content. There's more graphics. There's more audio. It's more realistic. It's got a better interface. It's made on better technology. But the same price is being charged for just an obscene amount of extra effort. The way I see it is that games are now too cheap. The whole value proposition of video games is completely broken. You might be an author, right? You might be an established author and you write a book and it takes you, say, six months. And let's say really conservatively, um, sorry, liberally, that, that you pay yourself 10K a month as an author and you're a good author and you sold books before. That's still only 60K, right? And yet these, some of these people will get huge advances, I mean, monumental advances. We're talking about millions of pounds for something that, in terms of creative input, is no more demanding than creation on a video game. Except in that case, you have hundreds of individuals working on it. And when the book comes out, it comes out for 10 quid. Now, compare that value proposition. Here's a novel that maybe takes four hours to read. And a video game requires 40, 50, 60 plus, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of content, including the DLCs, including the the stuff that comes later on the line. So in answer to your question, first of all, I think uh, fundamentally the economics of video games has been broken for a while. Mm-hmm. And that season pass, early access uh, updates are an attempt to keep a game alive for longer. This is something that um, Debbie Beswick, who's the owner of uh, Team 17, talked to me about many years ago when, when I was first starting the whole strategic content thing at PlayStation. She said, if you want to make money, you have to understand lifecycle management. And that means understanding that beyond the release of a game, there is a life cycle that you need to take advantage of. I mean, she has a strong retail background, worked with retail games for a long time. So she understood how this worked from uh, a physical retail uh, dimension before she went into the digital realm. And that means you need to understand promotions. You need to be, you you know, you need to have digital account managers who are in contact with every single store out there to know when those promotions are running, to know when there are seasonal changes which might trigger some kind of uh, new content release. Maybe you're developing content in response to something that's happening and you need to be able to respond very quickly. Maybe you need to add something at a point where you're doing a promotion. Maybe that's a good time to release new content because you've got eyes in your existing content. So understanding the life cycle of a video game post-release is an essential part 
of making the economics of video game development work. So Shahid, I know that you uh, have been speaking to some talented individuals over the last few days about uh, delays in game development. And I wondered if you had any specific insights that you were looking to share. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorites was, um, and you hinted at this earlier, um, Federico, was James Marsden, who's the founder of Future Lab and one of my favorite people in the video games business. Uh, Shout out to James. he basically said, my guess is that positions of leadership and decision-making authority are probably more likely to be filled by optimists. And Yoshida-san actually <laughs> responded to that and said, agreed. <laughs> 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 He's an optimist. I'm an optimist. Everyone I know in a commissioning position is an optimist. Well, right? sure. Right. But here's the interesting thing. Despite that, people like me, people like Yoshida-san... People in every commissioning um, position in the video games world have turned down way more games than they've commissioned. And yet they're optimists, right? So it sounds like they're optimists, but actually there's a whole lot of pragmatism hiding behind them. The optimism is in imagining that the jewel that these people have found amongst all of the stuff that's meh, well, that jewel would take any less time or the same time as any other game out there that's the optimism because the thing is you want to make it work right and so that i think this is one of the reasons why you've got optimists there because they find ways of making things work where pessimists are looking at ways to ensure that the bad stuff doesn't hurt the company right so you have to have that that mindset that's Mm -hmm. really important so I've been looking into um, Dungeons and Dragons recently, just kind of reading a bit about it here and there. And there is like a, it's called a alignment, right? And they have like a chaotic good and lawful good and stuff like that, right? So like these these ideas that like people's good and evil is on a spectrum. And I feel like that needs to be the same for optimism in management. Like you can be optimistic, but realistic, right? Like, which I think is what's required. Like you can be optimistic and like be, you know, you think you've got something good on your hands and you're really excited about it. You know, you've got a great team, but you can't over promise internally within your company at the risk of putting all of these people into a horrific crunch scenario. Right. But that might be the only way you get the game commissioned. Right. But that's a different situation. Right. Yeah, you know, like it? well, no, but like yes, that is a perfectly interesting and and somewhat valid scenario, but that isn't every scenario. I would suggest it's most scenarios. Right, but I'm talking about like imagine an Activision. Yeah. Right? Where I'm sure that there are middle managers at Activision that don't understand game development very well and uh they are they're, they're dealing with project management and they're just doing what they're doing and they think that they've got their timelines and they're over promising because it's not them doing the work because this happens at every large company and that's kind of what i'm referring to more rather than like the go get a studio that's trying to get sony to to publish their game and they get an inkling that if they say it will be done six months before they thought they could get it done sony might sign it Oh, for sure. For That's sure. a different situation. I mean, you're talking about miscommunication. It's it's a manager not entirely yeah. understanding that yeah. one of their uh, reports doesn't understand something completely. Yes. And one of my favorite responses was from Adam Orth, 
uh, the very famous Adam Orth, by the way, who uh, who made Adrift. And he says, nobody really knows anything. Remember, this is one of the most experienced guys in the industry. <laughs> Everyone is basically making it up as we go based on archaic production models mm -hmm. that are woefully out of date. Impossible to hit the mark on best guesses and constant blue sky overscope. It's totally nailed it. Yeah. So much of business is done under these terms, right? Like this is that thing you were talking about earlier with those six stages. It's it's like video game development isn't inherently different, I guess, to a lot of different types of media or but they but the fans of the media are much more passionate. So like I saw that at one point in our notes, Federico, you'd kind of reference the film industry. Yeah. Yeah. Movies get delayed, but but by and large, you know, the I think the the upset isn't felt as keenly. Like of course, it depend mm. there are uh there are different, you know, there are edge cases for everything. You know, like a Harry Potter movie being delayed would have been a pretty right. would have been a pretty big deal. But it feels like any, you know, any any reasonably sized video game receiving a delay is a is a is a big problem. It feels like it uh, the in the film industry is better at estimating when a movie is coming out than than the video game industry. And I do wonder if ultimately it comes down to the uh, increased complexity of video games and just the technological um, challenges of like yes there are technological changes in the movie industry but you can tell they're coming like the switch from uh, I don't know from uh, 2D to you know when they wanted to do 3D or like uh, we're adopting IMAX alright then we're all gonna shoot in an IMAX compatible format in the video game industry, you face the situation of like the you know the the bloodstained Kickstarter. Uh, the Wii U was the console, and then two year and a half later, the Wii U, the Wii U is no more. Yeah, the and way switch now. The way that we watch movies doesn't it's change not in such yeah. a way that it would necessarily affect you. Like if you were making a movie for DVD release and you had yeah. to put it on Blu-ray. It's not really going to affect you greatly. Still a movie, yeah. Like you're still shooting the movie. You have the story, so uh, I feel like there's more complexity to video games, also because you play them. They are an interactive form of art. It's not like you're just shooting the film. You go to watch the movie and you're done. Um, and especially like Shade, when when you mentioned like the multiplayer challenges, there are you need to test the servers. But how can you test servers when you don't have actually have players? So um, you go to New Zealand. Like or you do early access. You know, it's, it, yeah. it's worked for so many games on the PC. It's a wonderful model. I mean, I sometimes think that had there been an early access for PlayStation, No Man's Sky would have fared a lot better. 100%, yes. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Because it would have been a very different game. Because, yes, we don't need to get into it today, but yes, I... I mean, financially... Not necessarily, because no, it, it's not. staggeringly well. Yeah. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point the is point. we'd be talking yeah. a different story, wouldn't we? Yes. Well, because we'd be talking about how excited... Everyone will be so excited for No Man's Sky 2, uh, where now it's like, we're just going to keep building on No Man's Sky 1 for the foreseeable but, future. Yeah, that, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was always a plan. And it was, uh, the the sure. way I see it is that... No, no, it was. No, no, I no. no the, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. But my point. I think it would have just been done slightly differently. But it would have worked so much differently. better on PC. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It would have worked so much better on on uh, PC alone. But you know, the, 
uh, getting away from your point, which I want to come back to, which was about format changes, is that, you know, when you have a format change in video games, it's not just a case of having to throw away your assets and start again. It's about completely rebuilding them. Because, you know, if you just do a remaster with the same assets, you know it's not going to look good. Mm -hmm. So you have to have much, much higher resolution. But hey, if it's a new game that you're making and it's not been seen before, you haven't got the luxury of uh, leaning on the player's nostalgia for the original. You have to upgrade everything. And that also means game systems. That also means mechanics. Like we go back to our friends at Crackdown. I'm sure it was a big problem for them when they had to make everything 4K native for the Xbox One X, right? I'm sure that didn't help the situation. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, the, one of the biggest problems in video games is we underestimate the cost and we don't pay developers enough. Mm. And the reason developers don't get paid enough is because it's a highly competitive business and they themselves often have to submit an application for tender. They're pitching against many other people. People have limited budgets. So they, they, they themselves are optimists and they tend to overpromise. Why? Because it's the only way they're going to they're get the pitch. They say, well, you know what? We're going to do the best we can with the money you give us. How much are you going to give us? How many games are going to get signed? Zero. But if they say, we can do this for the money, another developer says, we can do that for the money. You're going to go with the one that offers more. But that developer might not necessarily be able to deliver. And here's the thing. Once you're beyond <laughs> the pit of disillusionment, the investor is in. Yeah. So they have to make a decision. Do we kill this game or do we continue it? And if we continue it, do we give them more money? Do we see sufficient promise in this? So this is where the balance tips often from, pes- from optimism to pessimism. So pessimism is the other driver for delaying video games. Why? Because what you will often get is that a pessimist says, no, this is not going to work. You're going to have to de-scope. Um, and of course, the developers not necessarily going to be happy with that because they would rather extend things slightly and take more money. Descoping will affect the quality of a game. And then you'll get to a point where they'll go back to, somebody will go back to the executives and say, uh, the game is not as good as we hoped it would be. And the developers are crying because you descoped the thing that was making it cool. And now executive management got a decision. Do we put some more money in to make it cool again? Uh, probably too late to put in the thing that you had to take out when you were round about the bottom of the pit of disillusionment. So there's this constant tension between quality, value, and time. And if you don't have, here's the other thing. Um, if you don't have a long post-production period, we don't really have one in video games. We have alpha, we have beta, I think the closest we have to post-production is an open exposure to early access. But I don't think that's a true post-production because that's the situation in which the audience is actually helping to shape the game. A a true post-production would allow a developer to make a good game great and you would get a lot more great games as a result. Too many, I think there are too many games that come out when they're at 70%. And you know that with another six months, they could have brought it up. 